Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Rybrook, New York. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Bernice Stemple had it all. She was stunningly beautiful with a fiercely independent spirit. She grew up in the New York City foster care system, but her beauty and strong will launched her from a rough childhood to an unbelievably successful adulthood. By her 20s, Bernice was a world-famous fashion model, best known for her work with Coca-Cola and the Salvador Dali. In the late 1940s, Bernice was swept off her feet by a tall, dark, and handsome man named Ben Novak, who worked in the Miami hotel industry. Even his name sounds important. For Ben, it was love at first sight, but there was one small problem. Bernice wasn't interested because Ben was married. Within two years of meeting Bernice, Ben decided that he couldn't live without her. One day, he showed up on Bernice's doorstep with a divorce certificate in hand. He had left his wife and officially asked Bernice on their first date. By 1951, they were married and officially Mr. and Mrs. Ben and Bernice Novak. Just a year after getting married, Ben purchased a $2.3 million mansion. For reference here, that would be equal to $25 million in today's money, so it was one hell of a mansion. After some high-dollar renovations, Ben turned that mansion into the iconic Fontaine Blue Hotel on the Miami oceanfront. Picture palm trees, endless blue water, and smooth jazz. It was the largest hotel Florida had ever seen. During the 50s and 60s, the five-star Fontaine Blue Hotel symbolized the glitz and glamour of Miami Beach. For 25 years, the Fontaine Blue didn't even have a sign, because frankly, it didn't need one. If you knew, you knew, and everyone knew which curved and sprawling, flawless building was the Fontaine Blue Hotel. If you didn't, you could probably figure it out by spotting celebrities like Elvis, Lucille Ball, Judy Garland, and Frank Sinatra, all of whom regularly stayed there, aka The King, I Love Lucy, Dorothy, and The Frank Sinatra. In an interview with 48 Hours, Miami tourism expert Michael Aller said it was the place to be and to be seen. Today, you can see the Fontaine Blue in movies like James Bond's Goldfinger, Scarface, and even Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard. It goes without saying that as owners of the Fontaine Blue, Ben and Bernice were doing incredibly well for themselves. They were rich and happy, but there was one thing missing. They wanted to start a family, so in 1956, that's exactly what they did, and welcomed Benjamin Novak Jr., a.k.a. Benji, into the world. Just to throw this out there, Ben Sr. had actually adopted his first wife's son, Ronald. But after Benji was born, Ben Sr. removed Ronald from his will, leaving him a whopping $1 inheritance. All of Ben Sr.'s multi-million dollar fortune was now to go straight to Benji. That being said, in the divorce settlement, his ex-wife Bella did receive a 1.5-acre property from Ben Sr. At one point, it was one of his hotels, and Bella never sold the property. When she died in 1999, the estate went to one of her cousins who did sell it. That cousin tried to find Bella's son, Ronald, to give him the money from the land sale, but he was nowhere to be found. 
For whatever reason, her cousin figured Ronald was dead, but that wasn't the case. No one could find him because he was without a home and had been for a long time. In 2010, just two days before Ronald was going to be officially declared dead, he showed up at the courthouse to claim his inheritance. The recently houseless Ronald Novak was now a millionaire. $7.5 million to be exact. But let's get back to the case. Born in 1956, Ben and Bernice's son Benji grew up in the absolute lap of luxury. He was raised in the penthouse suite of the Fontainebleau, and his status as a Novak essentially made him Miami Beach royalty. At an extremely young age, Benji met some of the most important people in the world when they would stay at the hotel. There's even a picture of six-year-old Benji with President John F. Kennedy. Considering the life he was born into, Benji was undoubtedly spoiled. If ever there was a child born with a silver spoon in their mouth, it was him. According to interviews with friends and family on 48 Hours, Benji was a quote-unquote brat. He had complete run and even control over the hotel. If he felt like a staff member wasn't serving his needs, he fired them on the spot and didn't feel bad about it. Benji's attitude in life made it hard for him to make friends. According to his aunt's interview with 48 Hours, Benji would go trick-or-treating with his chauffeur on Halloween, but never with kids his age. As Benji grew up, it became more and more clear that his personality wasn't a phase. Well into adulthood, Benji's own friends described him as arrogant and hard to like. Although Benji's younger years were something out of a dream, the fantasy fell apart as he got older. When he was 12, his parents divorced, and at 21, Benji's father went bankrupt and lost the hotel. According to 48 Hours, Benji was so distraught that he never drove past the Fontainebleau again. As devastated as he was, Benji had a plan. He'd grown up around money, business people, and the hotel industry, so using his unique set of skills, Benji started building his own empire. He founded Novak Enterprises, which specialized in organizing and overseeing business conventions. As the CEO of the company, Ben was, unsurprisingly, ruthless. He led the business to unprecedented success, but managed to make his fair share of enemies along the way. According to his friends' interviews with 48 Hours, Benji was known for holding people accountable, which translated meant someone's about to get fired. While he might have been a pill, he was a brilliant businessman. Novak Enterprises grossed a whopping $50 million a year. Though Benji was wildly successful, the relationships within the Novak family were tense to say the least. Benji loved his mother, Bernice, who actually worked for him as a secretary, though he wasn't, however, a fan of his father, Ben Sr. His father had ongoing health issues, and Benji used those health issues to try and convince the court to declare his father mentally incompetent. Even though Benji's business was topping $50 million a year, he still wanted control over his father's one whole million dollar estate. Keep in mind this was the 1980s, so with inflation, the estate would have been worth about $3.6 million in today's money. According to the New York Times, an employee of Ben Sr. fought against Benji's claim. The employee telling the courts that Benji kept his dad over-sedated, didn't let him see his friends, and illegally obtained his father's power of attorney. In the end, it didn't matter. Ben Sr. died of heart and lung failure in 1985, and Benji inherited almost all of his dad's assets. 
Benji Novak was a man of many interests, and he had more than enough money to pursue all of them. The one that consumed most of his money and effort was Batman. And no, I am not kidding. He had the second largest Batman memorabilia collection in the entire world, which I'm sure got him all the dates. According to 48 Hours, Benji's most prized possession was his life-size functioning replica of the Batmobile. Aside from his Batman obsession, Benji was also known for his unconventional sexual interests. He was open and unashamed about his preference for kinky sex, especially bondage. He would often visit sex workers and strip clubs. In fact, the woman Benji went on to marry, Narcy, was a dancer at one of those strip clubs. That's actually how they met. Narcisa Valise, who went by Narcy, was from Ecuador. She was a single mom to her 16-year-old daughter, May Abad. Narcy and Benji had grown up on total opposite sides of the financial spectrum. Where Benji had never wanted for anything, Narcy essentially came from nothing. Falling in love with Benji changed her life in ways she never could have expected. Narcy and Benji were both 35 when they married in August of 1991. According to Friends interviews with 48 Hours, they were passionately in love in the beginning of their relationship. After their wedding, they went on an extravagant honeymoon to Hong Kong, Australia, and Fiji. It was some kind of word beyond perfect. Narcy got everything she ever wanted, including designer clothing, luxury cars, a multi-million dollar home, and more. Narcy's daughter May got the same exact treatment. She loved Benji as if he was her real father and he loved her the same. In July of 2009, when Benji and Narcy, who were now 53 years old, along with Narcy's daughter May, were overseeing an Amway convention of more than 1,000 people for Novak Enterprises. It was held at the Rye Town Hilton in Rybrook, New York, which is about a half-hour drive from New York City. On Saturday, July 11th, Benji spent most of the night managing the convention. He was so busy that he didn't get back to their hotel room until 6.30 a.m. the following morning on July 12th. When Narcy left the room around 7 a.m. to make sure the convention's breakfast was running smoothly, she saw Benji awake and talking on the phone. 30 minutes later, Narcy returned to their hotel room to a scene that nightmares are made of. Benji had been brutally murdered. Benji's death is one of the most gruesome murders I have ever researched. According to 48 Hours, the hotel room was covered in blood. Benji had been hogtied with duct tape, binding his wrists and ankles together, and then binding those two bindings together. He was also mutilated. His head had been bashed in, his body was beaten, his mouth was taped shut, and his eyes had been physically cut out. From the brutality of Benji's injuries, it was clear that whoever killed him wanted him to suffer. The investigation into Benji's murder moved quickly and almost immediately ruled out robbery as a motive. There was no sign of forced entry, and while one of Benji's gold bracelets was missing, the rest of the expensive jewelry in the room was left alone. 
Police verified some of Narcy Novak's story with hotel surveillance, phone, and key card records. Benji had taken a call at 6.54 a.m. from an employee saying there was overcrowding at the breakfast. At 7.17 a.m., Narcy was seen on camera walking into the breakfast area to help find more seating. What investigators couldn't explain was that no room keys had been used to enter Benji and Narcy's hotel room between the time Narcy left and the time she returned. How did the killer get in without damaging the door or using a key? In interviews with police, Narcy thought she might have left the door open and that maybe the killer saw it and used it as an opportunity. But how likely is that? Hotel rooms are usually rigged to close on their own if they're left open. If someone had snuck in behind her, surely she would have seen them trying to squeeze in before the door shut. Investigators weren't buying Narcy's story, so they continued interviewing her for eight straight hours. Officers knew about Benji's sexual preferences and questioned if Narcy and Benji had started their usual BDSM routine, but then Narcy took advantage of Benji's vulnerable position and murdered him. But according to McClatchy News, Narcy vehemently denied that, though she did admit that she would sometimes tie him up by his arms, legs, and ankles. After telling investigators that, she used the opportunity to add that Benji was obsessed with sex with amputees, child porn, and sadomasochism, that he liked to play rough and would sometimes keep Narcy handcuffed for hours in one room while he worked in another. She also noted that Benji had gone to counseling for porn addiction. With all that in mind, Narcy still maintained that she never would have hurt Benji, that she was devoted to him even though he had a bad temper and unsavory sexual desires. Narcy told police to look into the enemies Benji had made throughout his career, but investigators still felt like they were barking up the right tree. According to ABC News, they gave her a polygraph test, and on the questions pertaining to Benji's murder, Narcy showed signs of deception. Two days after Benji was killed, police were called to Benji and Narcy's home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Narcy and her daughter May had gotten into a fight. May was upset about Benji's will because, as it turns out, Benji had left absolutely everything he owned to Narcy. May and Benji had been so close that it seemed odd that he wouldn't have left her anything, especially considering the fact that May's relationship with Bernice was awful to say the least he would have known that Narcy wouldn't have shared any of the money with her. Narcy and May's argument over the inheritance got so heated that security footage showed them slapping each other, which then turned into Nancy hitting May, her own daughter, with a crowbar. When police arrived on scene, May was yelling that Narcy had killed Benji. For whatever reason, no charges were filed, even though May's arms were covered in bruises from the crowbar. After hearing about the domestic and May's claim that Narcy had killed Benji, police in New York hopped on a plane and headed to Florida to get a better understanding of Benji's home life. It was there they discovered that Narcy and Benji weren't the loving couple they appeared to be on the outside. Benji cheated on Narcy constantly, and Narcy knew it. After 10 years of Benji's flagrant infidelity, their marriage deteriorated. Narcy snapped and staged an elaborate ruse to rob Benji in 2002. On the evening of June 8th, Narcy tricked Benji into believing they were going to have their usual BDSM-style sex. She tied Benji to a chair with rope and put a blindfold over his eyes, but sex did not follow. She instead hit Benji in the mouth, 
hard and threatened to cut off his genitals. Narcy then took some of Ben's papers, personal belongings, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash from the safe. She even hired a man to scare Benji, who was still bound and blindfolded. The hired man convinced him that there were multiple men in the house ready to hurt him. After the scorned lover sex robbery scheme was over, Benji called the police and explained that Narcy had orchestrated a home invasion and robbed him. According to interviews with 48 Hours, friends of the couple weren't even surprised that Narcy would do that. They suspected she'd wanted revenge for Benji's affairs. Despite the initial police report, Benji never followed through with the charges, and the two made up and stayed together. If you're thinking there's no way they went back to being any semblance of a normal couple after that, you would be correct. According to court documents, Narcy claimed that several years ago, Benji broke her nose. As an apology, Benji took Narcy to a plastic surgeon to have it fixed. But when Narcy woke up from her nose job, she found that the surgeon had given her breast implants as well. Narcy hadn't consented to the implants, and it was somehow at the order of Benji that the surgeon had done the procedure. How in the nip-tuck fuck that even happens, I do not know. After unraveling their sharknado of a marriage, investigators were pretty sure that Narcy was their killer, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge her. Plus, the motive didn't make a ton of sense. Narcy had had the opportunity to murder Benji in 2002, but she didn't. If Benji constantly cheating on her and literally altering her body without her consent didn't push Narcy to homicide, what would? Well, in 2008, Benji saw an ad online for a $300 an hour sex worker and stripper named Rebecca. She had previously worked in the porn industry. Benji reached out to her and the two hit it off. Their relationship quickly became serious and after two years, Benji promised Rebecca that he'd leave Narcy and marry her. About a year later, Narcy found out about the affair. She realized Ben was getting ready to divorce her and Narcy couldn't let that happen. Due to her and Benji's prenup, if they divorced, Narcy would only get $65,000, a whole lot less than if he died and everything was left to her. Financially frantic and all kinds of fucked up, Narcy contacted Rebecca and offered her 10,000 whole dollars to leave Benji, a whole bunch of nothing to the woman who was about to be the newest wife of a multimillionaire. Obviously, that didn't work. According to Rebecca's interview with 48 Hours, Narcy was obsessed with breaking her and Benji up, saying, if Narcy couldn't have him, no other woman was going to have him. Rebecca stayed with Benji despite Narcy's threats, but Narcy was determined. She executed a series of ridiculous schemes to break Rebecca and Benji up, so let's go through a few of them. According to court documents, Narcy contacted the FBI and told them that Benji and Rebecca were involved in an immigration fraud ring. When Narcy realized Benji was paying the rent for Rebecca's apartment, she called Rebecca's landlord and told them that Benji had died and he couldn't pay the rent anymore. Court documents also state that Narcy even tried to get Benji arrested. While on vacation in Mexico, Narcy told customs agents that Benji had smuggled 10,000 US dollars into the country. She insinuated to Mexican authorities that Benji was involved in illegal activities because she had no idea how he financed their lavish lifestyle. 0% of Narcy's plans worked. Benji stayed out of jail and continued his affair with Rebecca. 
At that point, investigators knew that Narcy was absolute batshit bananas and expanded their homicide investigation all the way back to the death of Benji's mother, Bernice Novak. You see, three months before Benji's death, his then 87-year-old mother had fallen and died. What seemed like a simple accident just a few months earlier was now looking a lot more suspicious. And frankly, it should have been suspicious from about second one of the investigation, but I can't turn back time. Benji was actually the one to discover his mom's body. According to 48 Hours, he was a total mama's boy, but Narcy and Bernice never got along. Frankly, the two hated each other, but regardless, when Bernice died, Narcy comforted Benji throughout his mourning. According to friends' interviews with 48 Hours, Narcy seemed genuinely caring as she supported Benji during his loss. When the initial shock wore off, Benji noticed some inconsistencies with his mom's death. Police found blood in Bernice's car, and it trailed throughout her house. On the table was a glass of white wine, which was strange because Bernice didn't drink white wine. According to her autopsy report, Bernice's injuries were extensive, and that is the understatement of the year. She had severe head injuries, a broken jaw, and was missing teeth. Local authorities absolutely dropped the ball when it came to the investigation into her death. No fingerprints were taken. No DNA samples were taken. They didn't even interview Bernice's neighbors. Police chalked up the severity of her injuries to her getting up and falling down repeatedly. Benji didn't think the evidence added up, and he, along with some of his other family members, refused to believe that Bernice's death was from an accidental fall. And they weren't alone in that. Investigative reporter Julie Brown told 48 Hours that she was working on a story about Benji's death when she came across Bernice's obituary. Julie thought it was strange that Bernice had accidentally died only three months before her son. When she saw Bernice's autopsy, she was convinced that Bernice had been murdered. Julie took her findings to the Miami police, but they ignored her, refusing to acknowledge that Bernice's death was anything more than an accident. Thankfully, police in New York felt differently. After the NYPD got this information, they started looking at Narcy as a person of interest for both Benji and Bernice's murders. Police knew that when Bernice died, her son Benji inherited her multi-million dollar estate, and since Benji died while still married to Narcy, Narcy was going to receive not only all of Benji's money, but all of Bernice's as well. Even still, authorities didn't have enough evidence to arrest Narcy. Ten days after Benji's murder, police caught a lucky break. They got an anonymous letter in Spanish stating that Narcy and her brother Cristobal had murdered Benji. According to court documents, on August 13th of 2009, investigators spoke with Cristobal at his apartment in Philadelphia. During the interview, police noticed a bunch of random papers strewn across his table. One of those papers was a Western Union receipt for $500 addressed to Alejandro Garcia in none other than Miami. 
On a hunch, police looked into Alejandro, knowing Miami was Benji's hometown, and it was a long way away from Cristobal's Philadelphia apartment. Police took a gander at Alejandro's arrest record and mugshot, then poured over hours and hours of hotel security footage, and there it was. In footage from a few days before the murder, detectives spotted Alejandro and another man, Joel Gonzalez, at the Rye Brook Hilton, the same hotel that Benji was killed at. Receipts showed that Alejandro and Joel were staying at another hotel nearby. In November of 2009, Alejandro was arrested in Miami on unrelated charges. When police in New York found out, they flew to Florida to interview him about Benji's murder. Initially, Alejandro refused to talk, but eventually accidentally implicated himself by saying that he feared for his family because the people who killed Benji were dangerous people. After speaking to Alejandro, authorities tracked down Joel Gonzalez, the man he was seen with at the Rybrook Hilton. According to 48 Hours, Joel confessed to everything. Once Alejandro found out about Joel's confession, he too sang like a bird. Both men explained that Narcy and Cristobal were the masterminds behind Benji and Bernice's murders. These are their confessions. In February of 2009, Narcy realized that her attempts to break up Benji and Rebecca weren't going to work. She was going to be replaced by Benji's new wife and due to their prenup would lose out on her multi-million dollar lifestyle. With that, Narcy hatched a plan to kill not only Benji, but also his mother Bernice. That way, when Benji died, she'd get twice the inheritance. Narcy paid her brother, Cristobal, to hire a hitman to kill Bernice. Cristobal hired three of them, but only one succeeded, that one being Alejandro. Narcy told him when and where he could attack Bernice, and according to interviews with 48 Hours, Bernice's neighbors noticed him lurking around her house for weeks prior to her death. After several unsuccessful attempts, Alejandro finally succeeded in killing 87-year-old Bernice Novak on April 4th of 2009. It's terrifying to think that someone was actively trying to kill her and she had absolutely no idea. On the day of Bernice's murder, Cristobal drove Alejandro to her house. According to court documents, he told Alejandro to give her a good beating and knock her teeth out. That night, Bernice got home, pulled into her garage, and had no idea that Alejandro was waiting behind her garbage cans near the driveway. He snuck up behind her, and when Bernice saw him, she screamed. To stop her, Alejandro hit Bernice in the mouth and head with a plumber's wrench, which ultimately killed her. He then dragged her body inside and left her there. Alejandro, Cristobal, and Narcy were absolutely going to get away with it too because somehow her brutal beating was ruled an accidental fall several times. In the world of Narcy Novak, all was going according to plan. Bernice was dead, Benji inherited her money, and nobody suspected a thing. Now it was time to kill Benji too. Following the same pattern as before, Narcy paid her brother to hire a hitman to kill Benji. Cristobal once again hired Alejandro, and Alejandro enlisted the help of his friend Joel. According to court documents, Cristobal convinced the two men to kill Benji because he claimed Benji was sexually abusing Narcy. It's strange that Cristobal had to give them a reason to kill Benji when Alejandro had just beaten his innocent 87-year-old mother to death. 
In July of 2009, Joel and Alejandro drove over 18 hours from Florida to New York, bringing their weapons to use against Benji with them. They checked into their hotel near the Rybrook Hilton, where Narcy and Benji were staying, and in the early morning hours of July 12th, Narcy made the call for them to come and kill Benji. Narcy let them into the room and watched as Alejandro and Joel attacked and murdered her husband. According to 48 Hours, Narcy was integral in the murder and directed the hitman's actions. To quiet Benji's screams, Narcy gave them a pillow. Then the two men taped Benji's arms, legs, and mouth, and at Narcy's order, they struck Benji with dumbbells multiple times and cut his eyes out with a knife. Benji's cause of death was listed as asphyxiation from the extremely tight duct tape over his mouth combined with blunt force trauma. After Benji was dead, Narcy gave the men his diamond-studded gold bracelet as payment. Cristobal had also hired two getaway drivers so Alejandro and Joel could easily flee the scene. Alone in the hotel room, Narcy proceeded to steal around $100,000 from Benji's profits from the convention. Narcy used that money to pay Cristobal and for her attorneys in the probate proceedings for Bernice and Benji's deaths. Yes, she killed Bernice so Benji would get her inheritance and then killed Benji, stole his money, and used that stolen money to pay for the attorneys so she could get her inheritance. From the very beginning, May was suspicious of her mother and uncle in Benji's death because she knew what her family was capable of. Cristobal actually anticipated that May might go to the cops, so according to court documents, that same summer of 2009, he hired Alejandro again to plant drugs and weapons in May's car. He was trying to get May arrested and out of the way, but when that didn't work, Cristobal hired Alejandro to beat May so badly that she would become disabled. May was neither framed nor hurt. When Alejandro shared that information with the police, authorities actually put May and her two sons into hiding. When Alejandro was being questioned by police, Cristobal started worrying that Alejandro might go to them, which he was obviously right because he already was. Cristobal was in full-blown criminal damage control just a lot of it too late. According to court documents, Cristobal decided to hire a different hitman to hush Alejandro's mouth. Fortunately, though, the hitman couldn't find Alejandro because he was already in police custody. About a year after Bernice and Benji's murders, Alejandro took a plea. As part of the deal, he had to testify at Narcy and Cristobal's trial in exchange he'd receive a reduced charge. Alejandro was sentenced to 17 years in prison for his role, and he also forfeited the $25,500 he was paid to kill them. Joel Gonzalez, the second hitman, also took a plea deal in exchange for his testimony in Cristobal and Nancy's trial. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The getaway drivers were also given a deal. On July 7th of 2010, just 12 years ago, Narcy and Cristobal were both indicted for Benji's murder. In April of 2011, they were also indicted for the murder of Bernice. They had a dual trial in a federal court one year later. 
According to People, the prosecution's case was simple, that Narcy knew Benji was having an affair, which would end up in their divorce. If Benji divorced her, Narcy would get hardly any money due to their prenup, so she orchestrated Bernice's death so that Benji would receive her inheritance. Then Narcy planned Benji's death so she could receive his inheritance. Though the prosecution's case was simple, the defense's theory was wild. According to People and the Huffington Post, they argued that Narcy's daughter, May, had framed her mother for the murders. That May and her sons would get Benji's money if Narcy was in prison. Their key piece of evidence was that Narcy was downstairs helping at the convention's breakfast while Benji was being murdered, completely ignoring the fact that that's literally how hitmen work. May told the Miami Herald that she wasn't surprised her mom was trying to frame her for murder. She said, this whole thing is a joke. To me, they're going to say whatever they can to save their own asses. In an episode of 48 Hours, investigative reporter Troy Roberts called Cristobal in prison and asked him how he was involved in Benji's murder. Cristobal still claimed that May framed him. On December 17, 2012, Narcy and Cristobal were sentenced to life in prison. They've tried to appeal their convictions, but all attempts have failed. Narcy is currently incarcerated at the Florida Correctional Institute in Tallahassee. She was unable to receive any money from Benji's estate due to a federal law called, I kid you not, the Slayer Statute, basically saying that you can't kill your spouse and inherit their money. Cristobal is incarcerated at McCreary United States Penitentiary in Pine Knot, Kentucky. The Novak inheritance that Benji and Bernice both died for has dwindled significantly over the years. At least six family members have claimed they deserve a portion of the money, five cousins and a woman who claims that she's Ben Sr.'s daughter. Ten years ago, the inheritance was worth around $4 million, and Benji's Batman collection was auctioned off for $350,000. May's son has ongoing heart complications, which forced her to work two jobs and sell everything she owned. Even then, she still couldn't afford the countless surgeries her son needed. In February of 2014, the court put $50,000 from the Novak fortune in a trust for May's son's medical expenses. It's unclear who will receive the remnants of Benji's fortune, but in doing research, it looks like most of it is still tied up in court as family members legally duke it out. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out the Novak highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.